Good morning, everyone. Boker Tov, and thank you for joining us for our weekly study of the Parsha, Parsha Perspectives for today. This week, we have the privilege of learning Parsha's Shlach together. Parsha Shlach, like every Parsha, I find myself introducing with these words, is action-packed. We have, of course, the most famous story of the Maraglim, an episode that has uh, left an indelible consequence until today. The Jewish people continue to suffer uh, as a result of that that, uh, terrible, terrible miscalculation and mistake. We have the story of what followed and the Moshe Rabbeinu needing to earn forgiveness on behalf of the people. We have the story of the Mekoshesh Eitzim, the Mitzvah of Chala, the story of the Mitzvah of Tzitzis. There's so much in here and we'll see as far as we can get together. Parsha series is sponsored this year by dear friends Becky and Avi Katz and family in memory of Becky's father, David Grossman, Leila Nishmas, David Men Menachem Manish. We're so grateful to the Katz for this and so much more. And we hope our learning will be in memory of a very special man. Our parsha begins in the Art Scroll Stone Chumash, page 798. God spoke to Moshe, saying, Shlach lecha anashim v'yasuru es-eretz kenan, asher anin osen levenei Yisrael, ish echad ish echad l'matea avuzav, tishlachu kol nasi bahem. Hashem said, send forth men, shlach lecha anashim. Note it doesn't say shlach anashim, the word lecha is entirely extraneous. The word lecha is extra. Pasuk could easily just said, Shlach Anashim, send men. Why does it say, Lecha for you? So Rashi quickly jumps in and says, Lecha l'da'atcha. Ani, eni mitzav Im Shlach. God says, it's not for me. I know the land. And I know I can follow through and make good on my promise. I know you'll conquer it. Don't do it for me. Lecha, it's for you. If somehow going there, investigating the land, understanding and scouting it out will give you a greater sense of confidence when you ascend to conquer, then be gesund. But no, it's not for me, it's for you. The people had said, we want to send. We want to send. So Moshe consulted with Hashem. And so on. So the extra word Lacha teaches, it's for you. Hashem says, I don't need it. Not for me. And this begins the saga. Identifying the 12 leaders, the 12 Nesim. We've spoken previously, we're not going to review this here. What is perhaps the most compelling question that jumps off the page of the Chumash every year that we interact, Parsha Shlach, which is, how could it be? Anashim Chashuvim, such great men who are identified as righteous, at least at the beginning. How could it be that these great men Imagine you send the Muetzas Gedolei Torah. You send the 12 biggest Gedolim, let's say the 20th century, the Rav, the Lababacher Rebbe, Rav Hutner, you send uh, Rav Ruderman, you send Rav Moshe Feinstein, Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky, you round it out, the greatest Gedolim, these 12 men, they go on a mission and they fail so miserably. And the failure is such a failure of a seeming heresy. It's a failure of distrust in Hashem. How could they come back and give this negative report? What exactly went wrong on their mission? We've discussed several times previously, and it's not our subject for today. But I want to call your attention to the opening Rashi. The opening Rashi wonders, as he often does, what is the juxtaposition? What is the meaning of the placement of this parsha? Right next to, right adjacent to the previous one. Shlachachan Hashim says, Rashi, Why does the story of the Maraglam appear right next to as a continuation to the story of the episode of Miriam? Miriam gossiped about her brother. She was quarantined, a word we previously only ever used on Parshas Bahaloscha to describe Miriam's status. 
Never did we know or our children were familiar with that word until now, until recently. So Miriam was quarantined as a result of gossiping about her brother. The people waited patiently for her return and then they resumed their journey together. Says Rashi, what is the connection between the end of last week's Pasha, the episode, the story of Miriam, which we are commanded and charged to remember, one of the six remembrances every single day, and the story of our Pasha, the Maraglam. Says Rashi, Lefisha Laksal Iske Diba Shedibra Ba'achia because these Maraglim should have watched. They should have seen closely and carefully. They should have extracted the lesson that there was to learn. What happened? Miriam gossiped. She spoke negatively about her brother and as a result suffered a consequence. They should have understood there's no room for gossip and slander. There's no room for negative speech and communication. They didn't learn. These wicked people instead did what? They went and gossiped about our greatest and holiest land, and as a result, the whole episode of the story ensues. Lolachu Musr. They didn't take the Musr from what they had seen and what they had experienced. You see the word Musr, and you know I'm going to quote Revolba. Revolba Nishir Man Chumash has a fantastic and such an important insight. So much so, it's amazing. These men are called Anashim Chashuvim. These were the Nesim, these were the Gedolim of their time, and yet Rashi has no hesitation here to call them Rishoyim Halalu. These wicked, evil people. These Rishoyim Halalu. What turns an Ashim Chashuvim, what turns a person of stature and esteem, a person of greatness, into these wicked, low-life people? What made them a Russia? So Rashi himself gives the answer. What made them Rashaim Halalu? Because Ra'u Velo Lakhu Musr. They saw something. They were exposed to something. They learned about something. They had access. They read about something. You know what it means to be a Russia? You know what is the path that leads one to become a Russia? When there was a lesson to have learned, but you rejected it. When there was something to glean, something to enrich, something to inspire, but your cynicism, your sarcasm, or your silence, your indifference, your apathy, your complacency caused you not to see it, not to learn it, not to extract it. You see, you could look at current events at what's happening around us in two different ways. You could think, it's so terrible to see the pain, the suffering. It's so terrible to learn about what's going on in the world, a natural disaster, or a war, or a pandemic, or even a positive thing, and simply to feel a sense of sympathy. Or you can look at these events on a more personal basis, and you can say, what am I meant to learn? Why do I know about this? And how is it meant to impact me? How is it meant to affect me? What am I meant to extract from it? What am I meant to learn from it? She says, Rashi, you know what makes Rashaim Halalu? Because Ra'u, they read the headlines, and they got the update, and they saw the news. In every news story, in every headline, in every blog post, in everything we see, we learn, we're exposed to, there's something to learn. I've told you before, undoubtedly I'll tell you again, the beautiful insight of the Baal Shem Tov. Baal Shem Tov says from the Mishnah in Pirkei Avos, it says, A person has to always know what is above him or her, I in a row, there's an eye watching, Ozen Shamas, there's an ear listening, and everything that we do, everywhere we react, is recorded in a Sefer. The simple understanding of the Mishnah is we're living in a time, we can identify with this more than ever, where 
There's a satellite. It's watching every movement, every action. It's recording every GPS. It's following everything that we look at on the web. Ayin Roa, Ozen Shamas. We have literally eyes in the sky that are watching and recording everything we're doing. There are listening devices. You have a conversation with someone. The next thing you know, you turn on your web browser and it's advertising the very thing that you were talking about. There's an eye watching. There's an ear listening. Big brother, it's all around us. So the simple understanding of the mission is even before technology was doing that, the Ribbon Shalom, the Almighty, was doing that. So therefore, kol ma'asecha b'sefer nechtovim. Be careful and be mindful and know that everything you do, someone is watching. But the Baal Shem Tov understood it differently. Know that there is a Hashem. Know that there is one above. And because there is a Hashem above, ayin ro'eh, whatever you see, you were meant to see. And ozen shomas, whatever you hear, you were meant to hear. And how you react to what you saw and what you heard, how that inspires or impacts or transforms you, whether you absorb it, learn from it, and become different from it, or you simply reject it. It bounces off of you and you remain unchanged in the same. That will be recorded for posterity. That will reflect on you always. So he doesn't quote this Revolba, but it's a beautiful Bashem Tov, and the Revolba is saying the same thing here. Rishoyim Halalu. You know what made these Miraglim Rishoyim? They went from Arashim Chashuvim, they went from the Moetzes Gedolei Atora into wicked men. Rishoyim Halalu. Why Ro'u? They read the headline. Ayin Ro'u, in Shamas. They saw what was going on. They were supposed to think. They were supposed to reflect. They were supposed to introspect. They were supposed to ask themselves, how am I meant to learn? How am I meant to change? But they didn't approach with a musr attitude. They didn't ask those questions. They didn't investigate in that way. And because of that, when a person is exposed to what's going on around them in the world, but they don't pause to say, how does this impact me? How am I meant to grow? That's not the conversation. So the conversation at the Shabbos table should not be the politics or the controversy or the divisiveness. It should be, wow, what do you think we're meant to learn? What is the lesson for us? Why do we know about this? That should be the conversation. One that is transformational. One that is inspiring. One that ra'u, we see and we learn and v'lakhu musr. And we take the lesson that's meant to be extracted from it. Rabbi Salavichik also notes and comments on this opening Rashi. We're going to try to get past the opening Pasuk today. That is our goal. I'll state our goal from the beginning. And Rabbi Salavichik says on this opening Pasuk as well, what does it mean, the opening Rashi? What were they supposed to have learned? What were they supposed to have learned? Says Rabbi Salavechik. Miriam had overlooked the skula element in Moshe, and they overlooked the skula element in the land. Miriam ignored the chosenness of her brother, his numinous character and charisma. The spies likewise could not grasp the secret of a skula land and its unique metaphysical relationship to the people. There was a common denominator in the two episodes, in her protest against Moshe and in their reports submitted to Moshe. The element of skula was absent from both. Here Rabbi Salavechik employs the term skula and he doesn't mean like a red bendel or going to the Kotel 40 days in a row or some skula, if you say this TBGB or you give this donation to the right person, it's going to be a skula and everything's going to be okay. Rabbi Salavechik, I can assure you, I never met him in person, but did not subscribe to the mystical and, uh, and um, what's the word I'm looking for, notion of, of, of uh, skulas that we have. What does Rabbi Salavechik mean that what's common between these two episodes is the lack of skula? The Torah itself uses the term skula, and what it does, it's not talking about superstition. That was the word. The Torah is not talking about skula in the form of superstition. When the Torah itself uses the word skula, it uses it in the context of being an amsegula. What does it mean to be an amsegula? Says Rabbi Salavechik, translating that word skula, skula means singular, distinct, unique, exclusive, special, elevated, 
That's what Sgula means. We are meant to be an Am Sgula. We should differentiate ourselves. We should elevate ourselves, not in a superior way to others. I'm going to give a shir over the next couple of weeks on the question, a very timely question. Do the Jewish people see ourselves as superior over others? Am Hanivchar. Are we the chosen people or the choosing people? Are we inherently and intrinsically better, superior, somehow more endowed with greater, greater knowledge, greater brain power, greater spirituality? Or are we the choosing people? Are we challenged to be better? Not that we are better, but we need to behave better and be better. It's a fascinating topic. We'll discuss it. So skula means you have a unique, exclusive mission in this world. It's distinct. It's special. That's why we're here. So the term skula we see applied to Klal Yisrael. We see it applied to Eretz Yisrael. We see it in several contexts. And here by Salavechik says, the lesson the Meraglim didn't learn is why did Mir- where did Miriam go wrong? Why was she quarantined and punished? Why did they have to wait for her to rejoin? Because... She challenged Moses' uniqueness. He's the Av HaNavim. One of the axioms of our faith, one of the Ramam's 13 principles of faith, is to know that Moshe is categorically different than all the other prophets. And Miriam, not that she underestimated or undervalued her own brother, but she challenged that component of him, that he was categorically different. She didn't see the skula, the uniqueness, the exclusivity, the singularity of Moshe. And that's the same mistake the Meraglim made. They looked at the land and they said, ah, the desert, Uganda, Boca, Teaneck, the five towns, Detroit, Chicago, LA, South Africa, South America, Australia, ah, we can live anywhere. What's the difference? As long as we have Torah, as long as we have mitzvot, as long as we have Hashem, it's just earth, it's soil, it's dirt. What's the difference? That's where they went wrong. Israel is unique. The land of Israel is unique. The land of Israel is distinct, it's singular. And there's countless, we once gave a shear about this, why the Uganda plan, why that proposal should have never even gotten off the ground. Because there is no, the, the notion of the Jewish people in Israel is not because that's where we're safest or we can protect our own. It's because there's something special. There's a skula to the soil. It's the only land that you have mitzvos hatluyos ba'aretz. There are mitzvos that depend on the land itself. It is unique. It is distinct. It's singular. Just as Miriam failed to see the uniqueness in Moshe, the Meraglim failed to acknowledge and affirm the singularity of the land of Israel. That's where they equally went wrong, and that's what Rashi is telling us. That Ra'u, they saw that mistake, a failure to acknowledge Segula, but, and they lo lakhu musr. They didn't recognize in the land of Israel. If you skip to Rabbi Soloveitchik, you ready? I told you we'll get past the first Pasuk. Let's go all the way to the end of the Parsha. When we're given the mitzvah of Chala. After the episode of the spies, and after we're given a law about how we expand uh, korbanos with flower offerings. Then we have the mitzvah of chala. Perak tezvav, pasuk yudzayin. Vaydaber shem ha-moshe lemor, daber el b'nei Yisrael v'yamarta aleyem, bevoachem al-ha-aretz ha-shani, mevi Yisrael shama. When I take you into the land, vayab be'achalchem nilechem ha-aretz, when you'll eat from the bread of the land, tarimu t'shurum al-ha-shem. There's a gift, there's a tithe that you give from the bread. Reishis arisosechem chala, tarimu t'shuma. The first portion of your dough, you have to separate as a loaf, as a gift. Goran kain tarimu osa, ketrumas goran kain tarimu osa, as the case in the gift of the threshing floor. Just like you separate from the produce, from the harvest, so do you separate from the chala. Today we don't give it to the Kohen, 
in biblical times it was given to the Kohen, it was considered among the tithes. Today we separate challah even in Chutz La'aretz, though it has a different din, a different uh, status than the challah that's separated in the land of Israel with practical consequences, not for now. Rather than give to the Kohen, the Kohen today is Tamei, the Kohen today, no offense to the Kohanim, are not Meyuchasim, we can't trace their lineage, we're not as confident or sure that in fact they're Kohanim, even though we still give them the first Aliyah and we let them Duchen, but when it comes to eating challah, we're even stricter. So what do we do? We destroy the challah. You burn it in the oven, other ways of destroying the challah. Why is the mitzvah of challah given here? We once gave a whole shir on challah. I don't know if we recorded it, if it's up online, but why is challah a woman's mitzvah and what's inherent? The school of racious ari sosechem. There are several things that are called racious. Bishvil racious. The Jewish people are the racious. We are the first. And the Torah is the racious. And challah is racious. Challah is considered a very holy, a very significant, a very beautiful mitzvah. It's not a skula. But it's a mitzvah, and every mitzvah we do is a skula. We don't need to invent new ones. So Rabbi Salavechik writes here, why is this mitzvah given here of all places? We had the tithes. Why don't we give the mitzvah of challah with trumos and maestros? We should give the mitzvah of challah with the other mitzvahs, with the other mitzvahs that are instructed to the farmer in an agrarian society. Why is it given here? Listen to what Rabbi Salavechik writes. He says, although the biblical obligation of separating challah applies only in the land of Israel, there's a fundamental difference between this mitzvah and others which are dependent on the land. The obligation to offer truma and maiser is a direct result of kedusha sa'aretz, the sanctity of the land, and is effective on fruits that are still connected to the tree, and hence to the land. The obligation of challah, on the other hand, takes effect well after the harvesting of the wheat. It takes place only once the dough is being prepared, which requires the intervention of man. Thus, the mitzvah reflects God's blessing not only on the land itself, but on man's effort in the land of Israel as well. Chala is different than the other trumas and maestros. Trumas and maestros draw their sanctity from being connected, attached to the land, from the holiness of the earth, of the soil of the land. Chala is once we manipulate the ingredients of the land. What is chala? It's not when we harvest, when we pluck. Chala is when we thresh the wheat and we have to winnow the wheat, and we have to knead it into dough, and we have to allow it to rise, and we have to bake it. And when it's challah, even before it's baked, when it's kneaded, when it's challah, that's when we separate. It is the marriage, it is the synergy, the hybrid of the holiness of the land and the holiness of those who manipulate it. It's not a coincidence, says the Rav, that this mitzvah appears after the incident of the spies. When they gave their report, the spies emphasized their own feelings of weakness and inadequacy in the face of obstacles that allegedly stood in their way in any effort to conquer the land. They argued that the fruit of the land was indeed wonderful, but it would be impossible to enjoy those fruits because of the overwhelming strength of the inhabitants and its impenetrable fortifications. The spies' sin was not their report on the land per se, but their perceived inability to partake of its fruits. As a counterpoint to the spies' argument, Hashem gave us the mitzvah chala, which contains within it the power of the land to bestow blessing from above on its inhabitants. Man's efforts will not be for naught. The land, as well as the efforts of the people, will equally be blessed. So the Rav writes, and here we've kind of bookended the Parsha. The beginning of the Parsha, what happened? Where did the Maraglim go wrong? Lo lakhu musr, from the story of Miriam. Just like Miriam failed to see the singularity, the uniqueness, the exclusivity of Moshe, the skula in Moshe, so too the Maraglim failed to see the singularity, the exclusiveness, the uniqueness of that land. This is a special land. And what is special about this land? Not only its inherent holiness, but its capacity to empower those who inhabit it. And is that not true about the the modern return to our land of Israel, the miracles that emanate from it every single day, breakthrough in technology and in medicine, talking about 
a group of people, survivors in 1948, weak and debilitated, who had nothing left, who found the courage and who found the capacity to be able to settle their land and defend it countless times since. The land empowers those who inhabit it. That's the nature of the mitzvah of challah. Challah is not just you harvest the fruit as is. It is the combination, the hybrid of what grows from the land and the people who manipulate it because the land itself empowers. That's what the Meraglim failed to see. The Meraglim had a insecure the Meraglim suffered from insecurity. They didn't have self-confidence. How do we know that? Because the Pasuk says that we saw ourselves in their eyes. What is the Pasuk? In our eyes, they, in their eyes, we were like grasshoppers, and so too in our eyes. And the Kotzker Rebbe, we've quoted this many times, the Kotzker says, I know how I can see myself. How can I tell you how they saw me? The spies return and they say, "Ah, we were just lowly grasshoppers in their eyes. You were lowly grasshoppers in their eyes. Would you read their blog? You heard their uh, WhatsApp message to their friends? How do you know how you appeared in their eyes? You didn't have a listening device in those days. How do you know? Says the Kutzker, because when you see yourself as small, you project that onto others and you assume they see you that way too. When you're insecure, you're projecting onto others and you're assuming how they see you. V'chein hayinu be'einehem. We were in our eyes we were like grasshoppers and so too in their eyes. The Kutzker says because we were projecting. We're supposed to do exactly the opposite. Exactly the opposite. Shlomo Karbach says, you know, when you wake up every morning, the first din, the first halach in Shulchan Aruch says, Wake up like a lion. Roar like a lion. A Jew is supposed to get out of bed and greet the day like a lion. You're not a grasshopper. You're not insignificant and negligible and nothing. Don't greet the day like a lowly grasshopper that you're ready to be stepped on. Hiskaber Ka'ari. Greet the day. Jump out of bed like a lion. Don't see yourself as a lowly cockroach. See yourself as the kingdom, as the king of the kingdom, the head of the kingdom. See yourself as a lion. It's the way we wake up in the morning. So their failure, the whole failure of the Meraglim was not a failure of faith in Hashem. It was a failure and a breakdown of faith in whom? In themselves. We saw ourselves as grasshoppers. And therefore, we assumed others saw us that way. If we see ourselves as a lion and we project that we're a lion, others will see us as a lion as well. So the mitzvah of challah says the rub is placed right here. Why? Because the breakdown, their failure was to not see the skula component of the land of Eretz Yisrael. To not realize that when you're in the land and you can manipulate its product, you can get the mitzvah of challah. It can empower and it can enrich and it can inspire and it can charge. It's so absolutely, it's so absolutely incredible. So we started with Rashi. Lama Nismacha. Why is our episode of the Meraglim adjacent to the story of Miriam? We saw one opinion of the of Revolba to learn from here. The, the headlines, what we see and what we hear around the world is meant to touch us, to inspire us, and that we will be judged and evaluated based on how impacted we are and how much we change by what we see all around us. Number one. We then saw Rabbi Salavechik. What was the connection? Because they, Miriam failed to see the singularity of Moshe, they failed to see the singularity of the land. I want to give you a third pshat. The third pshat comes from Rav Druk. Rav Yisrael Meir Druk, big Rosh Hashiva in Yerushalayim whose father was of great darshan, the Drash Mordechai, and he has a beautiful sefer called, set of svarim called Eish Tamid. And here he says the following, Yesh lahakshos, one can't help but, but wonder. Ketzar Yitzrichem HaMeraglim, 
Let's defend the Meraglim for a moment. Here Rash is quoting the Medrash, who say they're indicting the Meraglim. How? The Meraglim saw Moshe speak Lashon Hara, and they should have learned, don't speak Lashon Hara. So I don't understand, says Rav Druk. There's a huge distinction. She spoke about a person, a Elokim, her flesh and blood, Moshe. She ranked on, she gossiped, she was negative, she was critical about a person, a Tzalem Elokim. What did they do? The land, the earth, the stone, the sticks, the wood. From where should they have learned? From where should they have extrapolated? From where should they have compared? That if you can't speak negatively about a person, then certainly you shouldn't speak negatively about the land. Let's defend them for a moment. Let's be their defense attorney. This is an excellent defense. Who says you could learn a lesson from not speaking about a person to not speaking about land? Moreover, moreover, you say Ramizu, Eina mikram dom Miriam challenged the authority and the uniqueness of the Av HaNeviyim, of somebody categorically different, the greatest human that ever lived or ever will live. It's understandable, therefore, that the punishment was great. But how do you know that every other act of gossip, maybe if I gossip about my low-life neighbor who deserved for me to gossip, Maybe the punishment won't be as great. Certainly if I gossip about land, if I gossip about dirt, if I gossip about earth, sticks, and stones. So again, where should they have known that lesson? The Smichas Parshas tells me we're indicting the Maraglim. They should have seen the episode of Miriam and known don't gossip similarly about the land. Really? They should have known that? That's a lesson you could learn one from the other. So listen to what Avdruk answers. It's a very beautiful answer. He says, at the end of Parshas Bahaloscha, after that episode of the gossip, Hashem himself stands up and gives his endorsement. This is Hashem, I approve this message. I hereby endorse Moshe's candidacy. He says, Moshe is the humblest, the most humble of all people on the face of the earth. What words are extra in this statement? Is it not enough when God testifies that Moshe is the most humble of any human? Isn't it a little extra to say he's the most humble of any human? Where? On the face of the earth. Are the words on the face of the earth really necessary? Is a Kodesh Baruch Hu not laying it on a little thick? He's the most humble on the face of the earth. Just say he's the most humble person. And you know what? You're God. You know every person. We'll take your word for it. Why do you have to say, why do you have to say, Asher Apnei HaAdama? So it says Rav Druk, Let's understand Moshe's humility. It's not just that he forgave his sister. He was foregoing, he was forbearing, he was willing to forgive. How many people hold on to a grudge? How many people never let go? How many people never forgive? To family, to friends or acquaintances. And Moshe said, eh, she's my sister. I love her. I know she loves me. She had a bad moment. She had a bad moment. Such a beautiful, powerful message and precedent. He wasn't angry even of how they falsely accused him or distorted or misunderstood his own behavior. It was even more than that. Moshe Rabbeinu, who was so humble and modest, actually made himself like the dust of the earth. He said, it's, you know, I'm nothing. I'm absolutely nothing. 
So the fact that they spoke about me is like speaking about the dust of the earth. He wasn't makbed on his kavod. He wasn't makbed on his honor at all. He didn't demand respect at all. His humility made him see himself as no greater than the dust of the earth. He said, I know that I'm going to return to the earth from which we came, that one day I will be worm food, we all will be, and therefore who am I to be makbed? She made a mistake. What am I going to bear a grudge? Am I going to be angry at her forever? Am I going to refuse to forgive? What will that do for me? Because I know that I'm ultimately going to return to the ground and I see myself as no greater than the ground. That is what creates a sense of modesty and humility. That is what informs my ability to forgive. And Zesh Anu Mispalem B'choyom says, Rav Druk, is this not what we daven for every single day? At the end of our Shemona Esrei, we say three times a day, Elokai, my God, Nitzor L'shoni Meira, protect me from gossiping about others. And what do we ask for Hashem? V'nafshi ke'afar, Make my soul like dust, like ash, to all. Hashem, let me see myself as the dust of the earth. Let me not be exacting with others. Let me not be arrogant with others. Let me not be unforgiving with others. This is what we daven every day. Let me be a shtickle, a little bit like Moshe Rabbeinu. V'nafshi ka'afar l'kol Let me merit, let me have the fortitude and the strength to be like a nothing, like the dust of the earth, and therefore to be flexible and forgiving. The Rambam writes in Hilchus Tumas Saras, Miriam spoke about her brother, and Miriam was older, and Miriam was the one who saved him. Her mistake was that she compared him and held him to the standard of all of the prophets. But Moshe, this is with the Rambam, when the Rambam characterizes this, in his Mishnah Torah, in Hilchus Tumas Saras, the Rambam doesn't usually, talk, he usually talks about law there, but the Rambam says, when this happened to Moshe, Moshe wasn't strict, he wasn't exacting. So you see that Moshe was forgiving, and what gave Moshe the capacity to be forgiving? Nafshi ke'afar, because he saw himself as the dust of the earth. So now we understand, says Rav Druk, the Meraglim should have learned Musar from the story of Miriam. Why? Because Miriam spoke Lashnara about her brother, and Moshe saw that as, you know, it's as if she spoke Lashnara about sticks and stones. It's as if she spoke Lashnara on the dust of the earth, because that's all I am, is the dust of the earth. And therefore, and therefore, he was forgiving. And so the Meraglim should have understood that you can't speak, you can't speak Lashnara even Adama, even about the person who sees himself as Paneha Adama, you can't speak Lashonara about the Adama itself, about the land, about the land of Israel. Now we understand the connection. Where did Moshe draw the strength to be forgiving? Because his humility came from seeing himself as no greater than the earth. And therefore, the Meraglim should have learned that lesson. You can't speak about a person who sees themselves like the earth, and you can't speak about the earth itself either. Okay. The Pasuk describes these Meraglim, these princes. You're supposed to take one from each tribe. Each prince. I saw an interesting pshat. It's not a pshat. It's a chasid shavort. But the tzaddik, Rav Moshe Chaim Ephraim of Sodolkov, says the following. The word nasi, a prince, an aristocrat, a leader, an official, has within it two words. The word nasi has within it yesh and ayin. Yesh means something, significance, sophistication, 
and ayin means nothingness. A person can rise to a position of being a nasi for one of two reasons. They're ayin, they're empty, they're pathetic, they are counterfeit, they are an imposter, and all they want is the power, all they want is the esteem, all they want is everyone uh, deferring to them. That's a nasi who's risen to that out of being an ayin. But really a person should become a nasi, should be a prince of a person, not because of ayin, because you want the power, but you're empty, but because yesh, there's significance, and there's, there's, there's a sophistication, and you're a person of substance. There's substance. You could be a nasi who's ayin, who's absent substance, or you could be a nasi who's yesh, who's filled with substance, and that is our mission. That's the standard we should hold our leaders to, and that's the type of leadership that we ourselves should aspire to, is to be a nasi who has yesh, who has substance. Let's continue. Torah delineates who these Nesim were. And again, as we said, we've spoken in the past, we're not going to review now exactly where they went wrong. But Moshe anticipated they were going to go wrong. And this section is filled with lots of questions. Moshe changes Hosea's name to Yehoshua. Kalev stops in Davins and Hebron. And the question can be asked on all of them. If Moshe knew this was going to go bad, go wrong, why should he not have not changed Yehoshua's name? He should have stopped the whole mission. Abort mission. Call it off. Why'd they follow through nonetheless, even though he anticipated it was going to go wrong? You could say the same thing about Kalev. Kalev stops. We know they came up from the south. We'll get to that in a moment. And Kalev stops where? In Hebron. He goes to Marasa Machpelah. He goes to Davin at Kivrei Avos. He goes to Davin. This is part of the, the source that there is meaning in Davening at the graves of our, of our forefathers. He goes to Davin that he have the strength. If Kalev so anticipated things were going to go so wrong that he needed to Davin, then why cooperate? Simply say, I'm not going. Protest. I refuse to participate because I know this is not going to end well. That's a big question, not for now. The question I want to throw at you is, why does Moshe only change Yehoshua's name? These are the names of the great men that Moshe sent to investigate the land. Norman Mordkovsky, Allah Vashalom, a former member of BRS, every year Pasha Shlach would be upset. He says rabbis abuse the English language when we say that the spies went to spy out the land. There is no term in English, spy out land. They went to investigate the land. So in his memory, I use that word investigate. They went Latura Sa'arts, Latura Sa'arts, to investigate the land. By the way, there's got to be a connection. We've spoken about this in the past, not for now. They went, the mission is Latura Sa'arts, Lamed Taf Reish. And the end of the parasha tells us when it comes to tzitzis, why do we have tzitzis to remind us? The exact same word is used at the beginning of the parasha, the end of the parasha. The same word about the spies investigating the land is that we not spy and investigate what our heart desires. In the end of the parasha, there's a very deep connection. And Moshe changes Yehoshua's name from Hosea to Yehoshua. Says Rashi, Moshe Davin, may Hashem save you from what are the nefarious plans, the evil schemes of these Meraglim. Again, begging the question, if Moshe knew that then, why continue with the mission, abort mission? Where did the name, where did the letter Yud come from? Where did he find this Yud? The Yud, of course, came from the name of Sarai. Sarai was changed to Sarah, and the Yud came from there. So Moshe Davin on behalf of Hosea ben Nun and changed them to Yehoshua. Changed them to Yehoshua. The Orachayim HaKadosh here says that the letter Yud, 
which has the numerical value of the number 10, gave Yoshua the ability to overcome the Atzas Maraglam. How did you overcome the, the uh, scheme of the other 10? The letter Yud. That gave him the power to be able to, to, be able to uh, overcome it. Rishimon Schwab writes that Moshe's concern was about Moshe, uh, Yoshua. Why just Yoshua? Why didn't Moshe change Kalev's name? Why didn't he change the other 11 spies' name? If Moshe, if Moshe felt, if he intuited there was something going to go wrong here, why didn't he intervene and intercede beyond just with Yehoshua, only changing Yehoshua's name? Why didn't he change more than their names as well? Why didn't he change Kalev? So if Yaakov Kamenetsky has an answer when it comes to Kalev. Says the Amos Yaakov, who's Kalev married to? Kalev's got a pretty good wife. Kalev married well. Who's Kalev married to? None other than Miriam, Miriam Hanavia, Miriam Moshe's sister. So Moshe figures, you know, Kalev, my sister's got him covered. My, his wife's got him covered. She'll give him a bracha, she'll change his name, she'll inspire him. She's got Kalev covered. I've got to cover Yoshua. That's how the Emes the Yaakov, Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky answers. But Rav Druk has his own answer. I want to share with you Rav Druk and Rav Shimon Schwab's answer. We'll do a few pieces from Rav Druk today because he has really beautiful insights on the Parsha. I really love his Sefer. He says... Why did Moshe only daven for Yoshua over the other, the other, uh, the other Meraglim? And moreover, he quotes the Ramban. The Ramban here, Perak Yigimel Pasuk Dalad. The Ramban here in our parsha writes, "Nira Shirala Menosam Hina Lafim Malas Hashluchim." How do we list their order? The Ramban notes again, Perak Yigimel Pasuk Dalad. The Ramban notes if you look at the order that these spies are recorded in the Pesukim. What order is it following exactly? Is it following the order of the Shvatim, chronologically? What order is it following? So the Ramban writes, I can't find it, or I'd read it to you. Oh. He says, the Ramban, First the Ramban rules out how they're not listed. They're not listed according to their flag, their camping. They're not listed according to Tzivosam. They're not listed in chronological order of age. So what order do they appear in? What order do they appear in? Why are the Meraglim introduced to us in that order? Says the Rambam, They are in their order of greatness. They are in the order of their brilliance, of their knowledge, of their greatness, of their honor. They're not in the order of distinction of the tribe. They're not in the order of the camping arrangement. They're not in the order that they were born of age. What order do they appear in, says the Ramban? They appear in according to the order of their greatness. Good. Now go back and look at that list. Where does Yehoshua appear? Where does Yehoshua appear in the list? Yehoshua is number... Not one, two, three, or four. Yoshua is number five. So Yoshua is number five. Why did Moshe only daven for number five? Why didn't he daven for one through four? Or why didn't he daven through six through twelve, who were at greater risk because they were less impressive, less brilliant, less accomplished, less Yerushalayim? If a Ramban is right that they're listed in the quarter in the in the order of their greatness, then why skip to person number five, Yehoshua, and only daven for him? So Rav Druk suggests several answers. First he says, number one, the Gemara Barachos Dav Yedzayin tells us, Lo beno that a person is very uh, vigilant, careful, 
is very protective of their children and of their Talmidim. Yehoshua is Moshe's loyal Misharis. He's Moshe's loyal servant. He's Moshe's loyal assistant. Assistant professor, assistant rabbi, assistant leader of the Jewish people. And therefore Moshe has a greater affection for Yehoshua. He's overprotective of Yehoshua. If that Gemara and Brachos is right, that the natural inclination is a person is overprotective of their own children and their own Talmidim, their own students, that's why Moshe runs to protect Yehoshua and to change his name. That's number one. Suggestion number two of Rav Druk is based on the Mishnah in Avos. The Mishnah says, Moshe kibal Torah misinai, umisara to whom? Yehoshua. Moshe received the Torah from Harsinai, on Harsinai, from Harsinai, and he gave it to Yehoshua. The Rambam writes in his Akdama, Yehoshua shu talmido she Moshe Rabbeinu Masa Torah shu aleha. That Yehoshua, who was Moshe's loyal student, Moshe knew that the links in the chain would pass through Yehoshua. He knew that Yehoshua would be his successor. He knew that we would rely on Yehoshua. How did he know that? Last week's Pasha, Eldad and Medad, prophesized in the camp, Moshe Mace, the Yoshua Machnes. Moshe is going to die, and Eldad and Medad prophesized correctly and accurately that when Moshe dies, who will succeed him? Yoshua. So Moshe knew that Yehoshua was his successor. And as his successor, he could not get mixed up in controversy. He couldn't get mixed up in the episode of the spies. And therefore, suggestion answer number two, why did Moshe specifically change Hosea's name to Yehoshua? He skipped to spy number five specifically because he wanted to make sure his successor would get it right and not get mixed in in controversy and get it all wrong. Answer number three. Answer number three is based on the Targum Yonason. The Targum Yonason translates, Karchama Moshe Anvisanusoso de Yoshua, Kara Moshe Loshea Bernun, Yehoshua. The Targum Yonason seemingly in his translation of the Pasuk, in fact, explains the Pasuk because he adds to the Pasuk. He says, Moshe, out of his humility, called Moshe, out of the humility of Yehoshua, changed the name from Moshea to Yehoshua. First of all, we understand why Moshe loved Yehoshua. The teacher loves the student who most resembles, who most embraces their ideals, their values. If Yehoshua was characterized as being humble and modest, he gets that from his great Rebbe, from Moshe. Moshe loved and Moshe had this great affection for Yehoshua. But what does the Targum Yonasan mean? Because of Yehoshua's modesty, because of Yehoshua's humility, Moshe intervened and changed his name, added the letter Yud. So says Rav Druk, you know what it means? It means that Yehoshua would say to himself, you know what? I'm number five on the list. I'm number five on the dais at the Sea of Mashas. I'm number five in the list on the letterhead of the Moetzes Gedolei HaTorah. I'm number five in line at the TSA for our trip to investigate the land of Israel. I'm only number five. So when numbers one through four are going to stand up and say, the land, Eretz Ochelis Yoshveha, there's no way we can conquer it. It's not for us. We can't make it happen. Moshe feared that Yehoshua, out of his humility, would not stand up and protest. That Yehoshua, because of his humility and modesty, would go along with the crowd, would bow to the peer pressure. 
Humility is a wonderful quality, but humility can sometimes be a dangerous quality because if a person thinks too little of themselves and lacks the self-confidence and self-esteem to stand up and to fight and to articulate for what they believe in and what's right, to protest what's wrong, then that false understanding of humility or modesty, in fact, can be their demise. So Moshe says, I understand Yoshua is going to appear in the manifest as number five. Yoshua is going to appear as number five. And therefore, and therefore, I need to give him an extra special bracha. He gives him the letter Yud that will have the courage to be equal and opposite the other ten spies, to stand up and say what's right, that that humility will not in fact be the very thing that brings him down. That's what Rav Shuman Schwab says as well. He was concerned that Yoshua had absorbed his own quality of Ha'ish Moshe Anav Nikola Adam. These scouts were men of great stature. Yoshua's being listed fifth, though he was the quintessential Talmud of Moshe, there were four others who were greater, and Yoshua might humbly feel unworthy of disagreeing. Sometimes we are afraid to speak up because we think that we can't measure up. So Moshe was teaching Yoshua, there's a time for humility, and there's a time to be proud, and there's a time to stand up. You gotta stand up. Hiskaber Ka'ari, you're not a lowly grasshopper. Hiskaber Ka'ari, stand up and roar like a lion. Stand up and represent what we believe in and what's right. Okay, let's keep going. Perak Yedalad, Pasuk Tes. Perak Yedalad. National hysteria. The people come back and they give this negative report and the Jewish people have a meltdown and they cry the whole night and Hashem says, you cried for nothing? You cried for no reason? Believe me, I'm going to give you a reason to cry as well. I'm going to give you a reason to cry as well. And when is that day? Tishabav, the ninth of Av. And we continue to cry. We continue to suffer until this very day because of that baseless and, and false crying. The crying for no reason. That's why we were given a reason, given a reason to cry. You know, I think that's also a very relevant message in our time. It's a beautiful Kutzker. I love the Kutzker Rebbe. Cuts right to the chase. Kutzker says, you know, the Gemara tells us that the Shari Demos Lo Ninalu, the gates of tears were never locked. Even though there are gates to our prayers that are locked, when our, when our prayers are accompanied by tears, those gates are never locked. So the Kutzker's got a Givaldi Gakasha. Ask the Kutzker Rebbe, if the gates of tears, of prayers that are with tears, are never locked, why do you need gates altogether? What's the point of an unlocked gate? Why do you put up a gate if you're never going to lock it? What's the point of the gate? So the Kutzker says, he says, the gates of heartfelt, authentic, sincere tears, those are never locked. But the gates of false tears, of fake tears, of counterfeit tears, those tears, those gates are locked. That's why a Kaddish Baruch Hu has a gate there. The gates of real tears are never locked, but the gates of fake tears, those do get locked. And there the prayers, the counterfeit prayers are turned around and are rejected. We cried for no reason. Sometimes there's like tears for no reason. We have no context, no appreciation, no gratitude. We cry over petty things. We cry for no reason. Then we're given the tears to cry for a very significant reason. So here the Pasuk tells us, Perak Yedalad, Moshe and Aaron fell on their faces. And Yeshua ben Nuba, Kali ben Yifuna, Kara Bigdayim, the two tore their clothing. Believe it or not, there's a discussion among the commentators. Isn't that Batashchis? How could they tear their clothing? Why are they tearing their clothing? And they turned to the Jewish people and they said, Don't listen to these ten spies. Don't listen to the report. 
They're wrong. It's inaccurate. It's distorted. Their conclusion is wrong. The land we saw, we saw is Tova Aretz Ma'od Ma'od. It's very good. If Hashem desires us, He'll bring us to the land and give it to us. Don't rebel against God. Don't rebel against Him and don't fear the people in the land. Why? There are bread. Their protection has departed. Hashem is with us. You have nothing to fear. So Kalev and Yehoshua respond to the negative report and respond to the hysterical and panicked reaction of the people and try to reassure them, although it's too late. They say, if Hashem wants, He's going to bring us into this land. The land is all good. It's going to be amazing. You have nothing to worry about. And why do you have nothing to worry about? So I pull your, I draw your attention to words here that I must admit, I must shamefully admit to you, I never noticed before. What do these words mean? Sar tzilam me'alehem. Sar, abandoned, left. Tzilam, what is tzilam? So the Stam Chumash, the article translates it as the protection. That's not what the word tzil means. What does the word tzil mean? Shade or shadow. So what's going on over here? Sar tzilam. Kalavin Yoshua give an impassioned and compelling speech. You have nothing to worry about. And the land is beautiful. And if Hashem wants us there, He can take us there. And here's why you have nothing to worry about. Kisar tzilam. Yes, they're giants. There's a mighty army. There are inhabitants of the land. But you have nothing to worry. You fear from them. Why? Kisar tzilam. What is those words? Their protection has departed. But where do you see that in these, in these words? So the commentators all weigh in. The Ibn Ezra, the Ramban, let's share a few with you. Says the Ibn Ezra, Kisar Tzilam. Ibn Ezra says, Ki agibor, That even a mighty person, if he doesn't have their shield protecting them, then they're fearful. Kisar Tzilam means their shield is gone. Those who inhabit the land don't have their protection and you have nothing to worry about. You're good to go. Like the Ramban similarly explains that it means the weapons, their weapons of war. They don't have their weapons. They don't have access to their weapons. You are military superiority and therefore you have nothing to worry about. So the Ibn Ezra sees it in very practical terms. You have a superiority to them militarily. You have nothing to worry about. We can conquer it. The Ramban continues, and he has another explanation. Says the Ramban this very, very cryptic statement. I hope you have your Mikros Kudos, you're reading the Ramban with me inside. A very cryptic statement. Here the Ramban references an ancient practice that you probably don't do, but was practiced for many years, is quoted by many, many of our Rishonim and beyond. And the practice was that on Hoshana Rabbah evening, Hoshana Rabbah, the last day of Cholomoy Tzukas, the night of Hoshana Rabbah, Tikkun Leil Hoshana Rabbah, to go outside on Hoshana Rabbah and to see whether you can see your own shadow, whether the moon is producing your shadow. If you see your own shadow, you're going to live that year. And if you don't see your own shadow produced from the moon, on Tikkun Leil Hoshana Rabbah, it does not bode well for the year ahead. The Ramban gives us this cryptic custom that seems so foreign to us, seems so superstitious and bizarre. 
see your own shadow, you'll live. If you don't, you'll die. And the Ramban says, that's what's going on over here. Sar Tzilam, their shadow was gone, and therefore they have no protection, and therefore you have nothing to worry about, you're going to conquer. What in the world does it mean? What in the world does this mean? So the Rakanti, another one of the Rishonim, explains the Ramban. Tam vesodo ermoz what this custom is really all about is when we describe Hashem's divine protection, we describe it as Hashem Tzilcha Al Yad Yaminecha. Hashem is our Tzilcha, He is our shade, He is our shadow. And what it means, Sar Tzilcha, what it means that Sar Tzilam, their shadow, their shade is gone, it means the divine protection that's pulled back from them. Hashem is no longer willing there, living in the land. He now wants us to live in the land, and therefore we have nothing to be afraid. And similarly, when it comes to Hoshana Rabbanite, what it means is, are we under the divine shade? Are we under the divine protection? Are we under the divine shadow? That's how the Rakanti understands it. I offered my own suggestion once. What does it mean on Hoshana Rabbanite you go outside? It means the following. On the Yom Noraim, Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, we imagine and dream the best version of ourselves. We make all kinds of promises and pledges about who we're going to be. And then Sukkot comes along, and all of a sudden we're sitting in the Sukkah, and we're out on Tiulim, and we're having a good time, and are we realizing that best version of ourselves? Are our ambitions and aspirations for that year coming to fruition or not? What is a shadow? A shadow imitates, a shadow follows exactly who you are. Your shadow, you lift your arm, the shadow goes up. You lower your arm, the shadow goes down. What it means is you go outside and see your shadow means evaluate your sukkahs. Is your shadow, are you following exactly what you promised who you're going to be on those Yom Noraim? So that's how the Rakanti, the Ramban, understand. Sar Tzilam, Baruch withdrew Hashem Tzilcha. He withdrew his divine protection and they were not living up to who they could be. When we go in, we are to live up to who we're meant to be and therefore we will earn the divine the divine protection. Rabbeinu Bachyo also has a commentary on these words, Kisar Tzilam, but the difficult words, what exactly they mean. The Svasamas, the Ger Rebbe says the following, a person who goes out at night in the dark, and a person who's walking outside in the dark at night, you ever worried before you could turn your phone into a flashlight? If it's a Shabbos or a Yant, if you're going for a walk outside, and it's pitch black, there's a blackout, pitch black, what happens? You're going to be worried. You keep thinking you're seeing things. I see something. You keep convincing yourself that you see something. You have all these images and imagination, and it creates a panic and anxiety. And you think you hear things. And the closer you get, the realize, more you realize you didn't see anything. It wasn't really an image that you saw. All it was was a shadow of the tree. It was a shadow of the dumpster. It was a shadow of the garbage can. The things that you saw, thought were imposing and intimidating and threatening were in fact just shadows of inanimate objects that never ever posed a challenge. Says the Sfasemis, that's what's going on here. Atem Why? Sar me'alehem. All of this is only a shadow. Don't think they're intimidating and imposing. Tzilam, all they are is a shadow. Vashem itanu. They are a figment of the imagination. You know what's real? You know what's formidable? You know what is intimidating? The Ribbonu Shalom. Hashem. Sar Tzilam, all they are is that image that you think is real, that all along is only a shadow. You have nothing to worry about at all. Perik Yedalad, Pasuk Tezvav. Skip ahead. 
Moshe davens on behalf of the Jewish people, even though God reacts, of course, harshly, Moshe intervenes, intercedes on their behalf. And what's his prayer? What does he say? He says, Hashem, you killed this people like a single man. What's going to happen? If you kill, if you wipe out the Jewish people, what will the nations of the world say about you? What will they say about you? Don't do it for the people. Maybe indeed they are unworthy, undeserving. But Hashem, if you speak, if you wipe them out, what will people say about you? That you couldn't find a way to bring them into the land? That you couldn't get it done? That you weren't powerful enough? Revolba says something incredible on this Pasuk too. Says Revolba, you know what Moshe was telling them? What was Moshe's tefillah to Hashem? Moshe was telling them, teaching them an amazingly important lesson. What was the lesson? If you skip to Dvarim, in Parak Tess of Dvarim, Pasuk Chafei, the Rashbam is a comment. And the Rashbam says before his death, Moshe castigated Kla Yisrael regarding all that they had done wrong in the desert and the numerous tefillahs he had to offer on their behalf. And then Moshe tells them, when you get into the land, I won't be there and these prayers won't work. So you kept getting into trouble. And like a helicopter parent, I kept bailing you out. But once you get into the land, says Moshe, know that both in the land as opposed to outside of it and without me as opposed to with me, these prayers won't work. What was Moshe telling them? Says the Rashbam, Moshe's tefillah succeeded because B'nai Yisrael had not yet entered the land. They were living among the non-Jews of the world. And therefore, each of those prayers was, Hashem, what are others going to think if this is what you do? But once Hashem brings them into the promised land and destroys the inhabitants, no longer would anyone be able to claim that Hashem's ability was lacking. And so this prayer itself would be ineffective. So Revolba learns from here what a powerful lesson. He says every tefillah, every prayer, must somehow be connected to the theme of Kiddush Hashem or Chilal Hashem. So when you're davening for a sick person to get better, what you have to be saying is, Hashem, if the sick person dies, they can no longer, they can no longer repair and improve your world. What a Chilal Hashem that a virus, a pandemic wiped out and we didn't have the ability, you didn't give us the ability to heal it and to be protected from it. Every tefillah for Parnassah, for Gezunt, for Nachas should be couched in the terms, in the context of enable a Kiddush Hashem and prevent a Chilal Hashem. That's how the tefillah is most effective. The way to get through to Hashem, the most compelling tefillah to Hashem, is not in the pursuit of our own interest. The most compelling tefillah to Hashem is when it is to advance His interest in the context of a Kiddush Hashem or Chas V'Shalom in a Chilal Hashem. That's what Moshe is saying over here. Moshe says, What will the non-Jews say? What a Chilal Hashem that will be created. You have to forgive, otherwise it will be a Chilal Hashem. I want to end with one last thought. Then we have a peculiar word. A peculiar word. How did the people react at the end of this whole episode? We didn't even get, we talked about challah. We didn't get to the makoshish and we didn't get to tzitzis, but there's always next year. But I want to end with one more word. I can't believe the whole hour is up. About the miraglim. Pasuk, Perak Yudalad, Pasuk Lamites. Yudalad Lamites. The Pasuk says the following. At the end of this episode, look at this Pasuk. By Deber Moshe Sadvar Ma'ilah Bnei Yisrael, Moshe told him, I got bad news for you. Forty years we're going to be wandering. You thought we had the fast pass. You thought we were about to go to the front of the line and enter the land. I got bad news. You know, what's the worst news you can give a Jew? Back of the line. 
No fast pass. You can't buy your way to the front of the line. You can't cut the line. You can't upgrade. There's no rewards program. You have no status. It's like the worst words you could ever tell a Jew. You, can, you can't go in a wheelchair. There's nothing that's going to get you to the front of the line. Back of the line. This is the worst decree you could give a Jew. 40 years. You thought you were on the cusp, the precipice of entering the land. 40 years. A year for every day. Which, of course, begs the question we don't have time for now. We've discussed in the past. Their failure was only one day when they came back and gave the negative report. Why are they held accountable for 40 negative days? They only made a mistake for one day, not 40 days. So why did we have to wander 40 years? We should have wandered for one year. It's a great question. We've quoted from Rav Asher Weiss and others. Very brilliant answers. Not for now. Moshe gives them the bad news of the decree. Back of the line, 40 years. And even worse news for all of you, none of you are making it in there. You're all going to die in the desert. It's pretty much as bad as it gets. And how do they react? Vayis'ablu ha'am ma'od. The people mourned exceedingly. The word vayis'ablu, they mourned. Why are they mourning? Why are they mourning? Mourning is the loss of life. They could be sad. I would understand they would be saddened. But why are they mourning? Why are they mourning? And I want to end with this brilliant insight of Rabbi Salavechik, who says the following. He says, Once the consciousness of the sin reached B'nai Yisrael, it was expressed in the sorrow of mourning. What is the sorrow of mourning? According to Allah, the laws of mourning apply when a person loses something important and precious. The loss of money and property is not a real loss. A real loss is the loss of a dear and beloved person. Mourning is reaction to a loss and expresses itself in the strong sensation of nostalgia, of yearning, of retrospective memories. The power of mourning, its cruelty and its loneliness has its focal point in the memory of the human being. Were man able to forget to eradicate events from his memory, there would be no need for mourning. The feelings of bereavement are dependent on memory, which is the greatest blessing of man qua man. Memory constitutes the entire awareness of the human. In times of mourning, however, this blessing becomes a curse. Memories float up from the past, and when the past comes to the surface, a man is forced to compare yesterday with today, he is engulfed by a feeling of bereavement and mourning. Over the course of many years, a man becomes accustomed to returning home from his outside affairs. He climbs the few steps before the front door of his house in the same way he has done for years. He rings the bell out of habit and expects to hear his always soft steps from the other side of the door. He waits, but the steps never come. He puts his hand in his pocket, pulls out the key, and opens the door. It seems to be the same door and the same furniture. Everything is clean and polished. Nevertheless, something has changed. Everything appears to be in exactly the same state, in the same place in which it were before. Nothing has been moved. Only no one is there waiting for him. All around there is peace and quiet which can sometimes be worse than heart-rendering cries. Mourning engulfs his whole being. The sinner also mourns. What does the sinner mourn? He mourns that which he has irretrievably lost. What has he lost? Everything. The sinner has lost his purity, his holiness, his integrity, his spiritual wealth, the joy of life, the spirit of sanctity in man, all that gives meaning to life and content to human existence. The mourner mourns to the soul of the beloved one is lost. The sinner mourns his own soul, which he has lost. Mourning inevitably contains a masochistic element. The mourner tortures and torments himself. He hates himself. In the bereavement of sin, there's also a clear masochistic element. The sinner begins to sense a feeling of contempt and disgust towards himself. He experiences masochistic self-hatred. The sin is seen as an abomination, an object of revulsion, something utterly nauseating. The feeling generated by sin is not a moral sensation. The moral sense in man is not such a powerful force. The feeling of sin which drags a person to repentance is an aesthetic sensation. A negative aesthetic reaction. The natural inclination and desire of man is for the beautiful, for the aesthetic. Man despises the ugly. Sin contains ugliness, disgust, and abomination which repel man. The suffering of sin lies in the feeling of nausea towards the defiling, disgusting uncleanliness. It is this which draws him away. Thus, when Hashem seeks to draw man to tshuva, he arouses not only his moral awareness, which is usually not sufficient to strong to awaken him, but more his aesthetic consciousness, 
a better chance of affecting the repulsion of the despised and loathsome sin. So Rabbi Soloveitchik describes, and with this we end, Vayis Ablu, what were they mourning? What were they grieving? You know what they were mourning? They were mourning their poor judgment. They were mourning their mistake. They were mourning the lost opportunity. They were mourning the lost time. They were mourning the lost resources. Every year on Tisha B'av, I describe when we sit on the floor and we, and we cry and we mourn. Are we mourning for things 2,000 years old? No, we're mourning, we're reflecting on our past year. And we're mourning the lost opportunities. We're mourning the lost waste of money. We're mourning the squandered time. We're mourning the damaged relationships. We're grieving the parts of our soul that we didn't realize and that we didn't take advantage of. And that's why Vayis Ablu, when all of a sudden they had this moment and they realized we've blown it, and the consequence of their, of their actions, Vayis Ablu, they were grieving for all that they had lost in the horrific mistake that they had made, which is a brilliant insight into the whole concept of Chait and of Tshuva. Much more to talk about, but wishing everyone a wonderful and a beautiful day. We continue tomorrow morning, 8.15 with Mesilas Yisharim, 10 minutes, 8.45 tomorrow morning with Living in Namuna. Tomorrow night, 9 o'clock, we have an incredible episode of Behind the Beam, a very special guest. You'll find out more about, but wishing everyone a happy, healthy, and holy day.